Here is one of a series of talks by spiritual leader Lola McDowell Lee, spanning two decades from the early 70s through the 90s. Lola was a Zen Roshi, whose Rinzai lineage included Dr. Henry Platov and renowned Zen master Shigetsu Sasaki. Lola was a religious scholar as well as an ordained Christian minister. While the talks are focused mainly on Zen and Buddhism, Lola drew on many spiritual traditions, including those of Jesus, Plato, Lao Tzu, the Hindu Vedas, Meister Eckhart, and Gurdjieff. And his disciples said to him, When will the repose of the dead come about? And when will a new world come? And he said them he said to them, What you expect has come, but you know it not. And his disciples said to him, Twenty four prophets spoke in Israel, and they all spoke about thee. And he said to them, You have dismissed the living one who is before you, and you have spoken about the dead. And Jesus said, I have cast fire upon the world, and see, I guard the world until it is a fire. <clears throat> well, I think we know here that again and again and again and again, there are those who have become enlightened. Uh, they walk around and they have a few students and um, they're not recognized. That is uh, by the mass of people. And, and, you know, it's a matter of curiosity. Why does this happen? Why is it that people don't recognize you know, uh, for centuries, 25 of them, centuries, there has been <laughs> a great deal of thought about the Buddha. And for 2,000 years, there's been a great deal of thought about Jesus. And religions are created, and then great organizations grow, and they are created for and around the one who was not recognized when he was here. Strange, isn't it? Yeah. Both Jesus and Buddha had disciples and they had followers, but the mass of people, they missed. They just missed. <coughs> Why do we miss the living one? Because that's, you know, what an enlightened one he does more than represents. I'm going to use Aristotelian language and say is. <laughs> yeah? So there must be something in our minds, something very deep-rooted, 
something in the nature of, uh, of the mind, the human thinking mind, that does not allow us to see. Hmm? Uh, Jesus, you know, lived at a time, of course there was a Jewish tradition, and they were waiting for him. They didn't recognize him when he came. And in Greece, there, was, um, there were many so-called esoteric religions uh, where people were striving to be that living one. And it seems as if no one recognized him, except a very few, this handful of people Our human thinking mind should be understood. It should be seen. We should see this thinking mind and understand it. We should perceive this mind. And in looking at uh, this thinking mind, Look at it. You know, it's going hell-bent for election right now. Look at it. See it. Hmm. We can see, in looking at it, that in all the commotion that's going on, there is no present now. Hmm. We can see that it has past, and we can see that it has future, you know, the thinking mind can remember the past and it can desire the future or it can desire to shun the future, you know. But the present is so subtle that it's missed. Yeah. To see this present, we must be extremely alert. And a mind that is befuddled in its commotion you know, can't see. And this, this mind, you know, in its usual state, there are all kinds of dreams and fantasies. And they say that the dreams and the fantasies have a way of fulfilling us. There are many desires, and the fulfillment of some of these desires, they say, fulfill us. Us, do they, or do they just fulfill the ego? Of course, the ego needs a certain amount of satisfaction. Hmm? But in all of this commotion, there is not a presence of mind. You know, presence of mind. It is the presence of the mind that sees. Now we think that we understand the past. Um, as time goes along, we fit little incidents together, 
and we make a picture, or we can uh, create a theory, uh, we can create a mental structure, and we can systematize things, we put things in categories, and we can look and see uh, the steps that we took from the beginning of an incident to the end of an incident. And as we do this, and we do it all the time, very subtly we add, and very subtly we subtract, and very subtly we hide our ignorance. Hmm? Because we get it all there in this nice picture, and we say, yeah, now I know, now I understand, now I see. Yeah. <clears throat> So, but not having seen clearly in the first place, hmm? because some factors, as we know, are always left out. I mean, it's the same way <clears throat> that when you look around the room, uh, your eyes move all the time because there is a little blind spot. There's always something left out. And it is the same way with the thinking mind. It sees, but something is left out. There's a blind spot. <clears throat> but anyway, we have this picture that we have created of the incident, and we've added and we've subtracted until we have a picture that suits us. Sometimes, once in a while, uh, we are honest enough uh, to allow the incident to remain as we first saw it, as it was. Huh? Once in a while we do this. <clears throat> but we still have a picture, an image, whether we've rearranged it or whether we're trying very hard to look at it as it is. And from this picture, now, we learn. We say we learn, huh? We learn, hopefully, not to put our foot in that tub of water again. Huh? Or uh, at least, uh, it holds us back from seeking more water from a similar tub. Now, say Jesus could walk in here right now. I mean, think of the presence that this man would exhibit. When someone like that is present, or when you're having a very private conversation, let us say, with such a one, we don't have time to think. Actually, you don't. Somehow or another, uh, things that you want to say have gone out the window. Hmm? Well, I can remember Vivan coming to call at my house and um, sitting down, he says, finally, do you have any questions? 
Oh, yes, I've got a million of them. Well, shall we start with number one? And you think I could think of one? <laughs> yeah. See? Oh. I've had something similar happen to me with Henry. You know, he'd say, I'm not supposed to talk to you. You're supposed to talk to me. You're supposed to tell me, and you're supposed to question me. Oh. <laughs> you see, all of a sudden, there's no thinking, absolutely no thinking. But when I finally do come up with a question, you wouldn't answer it. <laughs> Fine, how do you do, huh? Yeah. When uh, you're confronted, and that's part of the confrontation thing, too. You're not supposed to think it out. You're supposed to present what you see. Hmm? Anyway, when you are confronted with a person like that, there's somehow you don't have time to think. There isn't uh, to think things out and say, oh, yeah, one, two, three, four, mm, here. You know, what is needed in that instance is your presence, not your thinking, your presence. You know, just pay attention to yourself. That doesn't mean get involved with yourself. It just means pay attention. Be present. Hmm? The thinking needs time in order to segregate and so on and so on. Time, needs, time is needed to think, yeah. Because <clears throat> thinking sort of gropes around in the dark. It, it, in its ignorance, you know, it, it flips around and picks this out and picks that out, you know. And of course, this takes time, you know. If there is now an understanding of what is true, one just looks directly. One looks. Hmm. Now, if we don't have that kind of understanding in the particular situation, then we have to think. Hmm. Now, we could say <coughs> that there are two kinds of understanding, or we could say there are two ways of seeing. One, we see the empirical world, and then we also see the transcendent or the eternal world. These two aspects can be seen, they can be perceived. We can see them one after the other. Or the empirical world, it's just one and one and one and one and one, and occasionally the other. Hmm? Now, both aspects could be encompassed in one glance, in one perception. One look, just to see. To witness the apparent in the real, and to witness the real in the apparent. 
no discrepancy between. Then you will understand that this thing about the form is formless and formless is form. Hmm? And so, um, in Zen, uh, there are sayings, there are poems, and there are paintings that look as if they were objective descriptions of nature. You know, the, um, the waterfalls and the little man standing by the waterfall or the geese flying or whatever, you know, this kind of painting that they do. It looks like they're painting nature with the fog sometimes and the trees and so on. And along this vein, there was once uh, a Zen master who asked his disciple about a mountain, a mountain called Chia. He said to him, how is the landscape of the mountain Chia? And this disciple replied, monkeys have already gone home behind the blue peaks, embracing their young to their breasts. A bird had alighted before the deep green rocks, carrying a flower petal in its beak. And Fa Yang, who was this very great master, says, or they say that he said, for 30 years I have mistakenly regarded this as a description of the external landscape. Now, in light of what I said a few minutes ago, do you think that Fa Yen's statement means that the landscape is to be taken as a symbolic presentation or representation of something. We see a picture of that kind and we say, oh, I wonder what that represents. Hmm? Not what they mean at all. The creator of this poem is trying to say something the things of nature, the different degrees of nature, like monkeys and birds and blue peaks and green rocks and flower petals, are not symbolic of something. They are concretely real things. They are apparent things also. So we have the apparent and the eternal or the real present. And if both are present, what is there to change? Now, in the mind, <clears throat> there is a very delicate equilibrium.
we see with the mind. And this equilibrium is present in the mind. <clears throat> and we can find it through a focus intently held. And we find that this equilibrium can tilt. And it can tilt in either direction. One moment the eternal is present very prominently. And the next moment, the time-space dimension may hide the eternal world. And yet, they are both present. They can be seen simultaneously. It is one whole. It is one world. It is not two. You don't have two minds, one with which you see this world and one with which you see the other world. One mind sees both. Hmm? <clears throat> now, when one perceives not two, but one whole, the two aspects of, as one whole. And now, these two aspects somehow form a union. There's no discrepancy between. There is a union. And then we can read a little poem that goes like this. The shadows of the bamboos are sweeping the staircase. The shadows are sweeping the staircase, but there is no stirring of even a mote of dust. The moonlight is piercing to the bottom of a deep river, but there is not even a scar left in the waters. Hmm? So we have a phenomenal commotion and a noumenal tranquility. Hmm? Two aspects of one single reality, seen in the act of mind presence, seen with the eye of mind. You know, there is that, there is that noetic poem. We should dig it out. I joy in joy of mind, in the eye of mind. The eye of my eye of mind. Hmm? <clears throat> now, in the understanding of <clears throat> what we are pleased to call the real or the noumenal world or the eternal world, hmm, uh, to understand it, there is no need, it would be impossible, to think from A to B to C to D. Hmm. What is involved is simply a look. And it is the look that reveals. And it is the look that gives you meaning. Hmm? Now, <clears throat> in not understanding the real or a non-understanding of the real, we are sort of like, <clears throat> we can liken ourselves to a blind man. You know, and this man now, he can't see 
but he wants to go out of the house. He wants to go on an errand or something. And so before he leaves, you know, he's familiar with the house, he has to think. That is, he enumerates to himself, the door is there, the staircase is there, the sidewalk is there, the garden is there, and the gate is there. See, they're all placed in his mind so he won't fall and so he can find his way back. Hmm? But a person with eyes who can see, when he goes out, he simply goes out. See? He doesn't stop to think, where is the door and where is the stair and where is the gate? See? He looks and he sees. In that look, there's, you, don't, you don't have any need to think. Do you? No. In that look, there is not even time to think. He looks, he sees. Huh? The look reveals where the way is, where the door is, where the gate is, and he goes. Just one look. Is there an ad like that someplace on TV? Just one look. I think so. Now, <clears throat> when a person, when a man like Jesus is present, standing in front of you, <clears throat> the gate's open. Hmm? But if we don't see that it is, you know, then we question. We have all these questions, you know. And we even ask him, you know, where's the door? Show me the way. Can you show me the way? See, and we're going from A to B. We're not just looking. William Hunt painted a picture, which is by now quite famous. And it depicts Jesus standing at the door. The door is closed, and evidently has been closed for some time because there's all kinds of weeds growing around the little stoop on which Jesus is standing. You all know the picture, huh? huh? And he's standing at the door. And the picture is entitled, Behold, I stand at the door. And there is a knocker on the door, and Jesus has his hand on the knocker. So the night that the picture was first exhibited in London, the critics stood, stood around looking at it, you know, looking for a flaw, naturally. That's what critics do, you know, they criticize. So they're standing around there looking at this thing, and finally they say to him, and they say, but there's no door handle. There's a knocker, but there's no door handle, you know. No handle on the door. How can we get in? See. And this Mr. Hunt, he just laughed, and he said, but the door opens from inside. Jesus is standing at the door, the door of man, at the door of the heart. It can't be opened from the outside, you know, so there's no need for a handle. Hmm? The person must open the door of his heart. 
He must open his heart. Maybe that's why people miss. Hmm? Opening the door to the heart doesn't take any thinking. You just open. Hmm? On top of that, maybe we're blind. And on top of that, we're fearful. If we open our hearts and our minds to that person, here comes the unknown. I'm swallowed by the unknown, huh? You open your heart to what? With the past, we're at ease. Yeah, time has gone by. And we can look at Jesus now. He lived a long, long time ago. Buddha lived a long, long time ago. Many people have thought about him and uh, what they said when they were here. And many people have created a lot of theories about them. And they have supplied us with all their theories about. Wherever you go, you can find theories about him. Huh? And so now we can look at a book. We can look at lots of books. And we read a book and we come to a conclusion. We read another book and it refutes what this one says and we're kind of in a dither. So we read another one and pretty soon we've got this built up. huh? But it's easy. We, there may be a lot of commotion in the mind, but there's no danger here to me, I think. Mm hmm? I mean, even if you opened your heart to a book, which you can do, you know, not very much is going to happen. <laughs> Millions of people read the Bible every day. Millions. In India, the Vedas are read every day. Buddhists read the Dhammapada every day. Where is all the enlightenment? Where is all the liberation? Where's the fire? Hmm? And our fears. Who is this that is afraid? Hmm? It is precisely that in you which is not you. Precisely. What is fearful is the accumulation of memories of the past, and it is an identity image which is fearful. Oh, what my neighbor is going to think of me, you know. I mean, after all, here I am. I'm a person of some position. <clears throat> I have some prestige, and I'm respectable. The image that we have of ourselves, our identity, huh? Called ego. Hmm? comes a little flicker of a flame to open the heart. And this ego all of a sudden sits up and says, now, now, be alert. Don't let it in. Be alert. Don't be so quick to open that door. You know, after all, we don't know what's going to happen. Let's make sure first that it's okay. So we've got to think it over, you know. And by the time 
You're sure that it's okay? <laughs> the opportunity is long gone. Hmm? One could say he can't wait at your door forever, except that he does, or it does. Yeah. This penetration of the unknown into the known. And there are certain moments that come our way that are ripe with such possibilities. And then this cotton-picking ego says, hey, now, wait a minute here. Huh? Wait until we think this thing through. No, it's all gone. We miss. And there has been in all of that no presence of mind. Only this ego leading a drum corps or a brass band or what have you, you know, leading all this commotion of thinking. Set it aside. It's important. I know it's important. Thinking is important. <coughs> there weren't any thinking. I couldn't stand up here and talk to you. And you couldn't listen. It's important. But at the same time, in the thinking, there is not this presence of mind. Now, his disciples said to him, when will the repose of the dead come about? I mean, when are all these people going to be saved? You know, when is going to be all this resurrection? See, when will a new world come? Now, people at that time had been waiting for a long while, I mean, also a long while, for the day when the dead should be resurrected. Hmm? <laughs> when the day of the new world order of peace, of all this benediction, should shower upon us, when the divine order would come to light, just to light up this planet. They're waiting for it. People today are waiting for it. They're still waiting for it. 2,000 years later, they're still waiting for it. I was in the doctor's office the other day. I had some questions I wanted to ask him, so we had a chat. And it finally evolved down to a bunch of other things. And I said, you know, it's possible that the situation could be even worse before it gets better. He said, mm-mm, the Lord will come before then. See? Very intelligent man. Still waiting. Yeah. And you know, to some people, this world is an ugly place. It's like a nightmare for them. And the only way they can tolerate being alive is to have some escape. You know, that, you know they fantasize about how this nightmare is going to end. And someday this ugly old world is just going to disappear and there will be this new world of beauty and truth and goodness and there will be no sickness and everybody's going to live in a nice house and have three meals a day and have everything they want and be healthy and happy and you name it. Hmm? And it is an idea that is so intoxicating and so hopeful that this ugliness will just go away. So now I can wait. 
It's going to come. This ugliness is not final. This life is not the real life. The real life is yet to come. And there was a little woman that used to come and visit my mother. Her name was Josephine. And she used to come with these little booklets to sell. And they were both very lonely little ladies. You know, so they formed a kind of a comradeship. When Josephine came, Mother invited her in and listened to everything that she had to say because it was somebody to talk to. She was there alone all day long. And um, Josephine would tell her, you know, about the world that was to come. It was going to be paradise on earth. No sickness. No problems. No problems whatsoever. And then, of course, those who didn't believe this, they were going to go to hell, and, of course, there would be a balcony around paradise where these people could sit and watch what was going on down there. <clears throat> and then, of course, the 144,000 elect would rise to heaven, and they would have even a better view because they could see paradise and they could see the other one all in one swoop. And she really believed it. She really believed this thing. So I asked my mother one day, Did you, do you really believe what she says? No, but she, she likes to talk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All of this, you know, the thinking mind of man. One uh, who has had a perception a look of this world, begins to accept it as it is. And he is, has a, a deep acceptance. He's grateful. And, you know, we could practice that just to accept, just to be grateful. We may not know it exactly now, but we will. Now we see in a glass darkly, but then face to face. Hmm? Yeah. And he knew. Through acceptance. Now that means you have to accept yourself in this world also. Through an acceptance, one is taking steps toward a rebirth, to be born anew. And when one is born anew, a new world is born also. Hmm? The world is now seen in the presence of mind. See, it still comes back. It's in the eye of the beholder. Hmm. Somewhat. His disciples said to him, you know, 24 prophets spoke in Israel, and they all spoke about thee. And he said to them, you have dismissed the living one who is before you, and you have spoken about the dead. <clears throat> you know, it's like he's saying, you know, this living one is standing in front of you, and here, why do you bring in the 24 prophets who lived a long time ago? You're not looking. Hmm? You're talking about the past. 
I am here. You know, here I am. Hmm? <clears throat> so one should look and then drink very deeply, you know, allowing that which we call the living one to enter into the deepest part of ourselves. Never mind the dead. You know, in a way, he was saying, what do you want, a certificate from me? Hmm? Do you want a signature on a piece of paper? Yes, they spoke about me. No. But can't you see? Hmm? Do you need a certificate? If the presence is not enough, what good does a certificate do? <coughs> the question showed they missed the mark. Present in front of them, he says, look at the living one. You know, there's a, there's a lot of people They close their eyes and they fold their hands. They read a little bit in the Bible and then they close their eyes and they fold their hands. And so they visualize him. You know, they see him. And they enjoy him. You know, it's, it's their consolation that they didn't live when he was here. They would have recognized him, they say. Mm -hmm. It's consolation. It is not a fire. Supposing you met a teacher and you came to the teacher and said, I have seen the Buddha. What would he say? Or I have seen the Christ. And if he would say, well, sure, fine, that's good. You know, you go skipping away like a happy little kid. If he says, mm -mm, that's your imagination. You leave abruptly. What does he know, anyway? <laughs> See, you console yourself. And of course, you know, they have in the Zen, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. You know, scientists today, some of them realize that when they look at um, the world through a microscope and they see the actions of this microscopic world, there is not only the microscopic world that is involved, they are involved. The observer is involved. Ordinarily, when we look at the world and we see the scene, we forget it is not just the scene that we see. There's more to the picture that we see. There is the combination of oneself with it. It is not only the perception with the senses, you know, this solid, hard 
world of earth, you know, and that little, not so little, point of light up there in the sky. In the perception with the eyes and the ears and the nose, also there is involved in that perception our ideas, our insights, our meanings. As we have within ourselves, as we focus within ourselves, we have deeper insights. And little by little, the thinking becomes more correct because we do have these insights. And because of these insights, new meanings come about. So the seeing then of familiar things have a new light slightly sh shift a little bit, you know, for a new meaning, a little shift. Uh, and we can see, finally, that we have been given bread from heaven as well as from earth, around us all the time. Mm. And this heaven, we see, uh, is transcendent, and it is beyond the command of the senses. We see that it is discerned with a particular quality, the noetic quality, or the eye of mind, which is sometimes called understanding wisdom, hyphenated, two words, huh? understanding wisdom, boom, eye. <clears throat> and through this eye, there can suddenly, I mean, be opened in us a realm of experience that is not only the phenomenal, that outside world, but also the eternal or noumenal world. And in that insight, in that opening, you know, it is all of a sudden as if we're bathed in a light of new meaning. And it is a light that has no violence. It is a purity. There is a, it is as if there is a luminosity with no shadow. And in that sudden opening, in this light, all of a sudden the ego's gone. And you don't even miss it until it comes back, and then you sit and swear at it. Hmm? But all of a sudden, you see, we see. Furthermore, when do we see with the mind? We see with authority. Hmm? We see with the authority that the new meaning has given us. 
and we can touch without the sense of separateness that the physical touch gives us. We feel in a depth without talking to ourselves, without any of this surface personality interfering. Every experience that we have with this light deeply recreates us. It is a creating light, huh? It transforms us and meaning. This transformation, this new me and even just new meaning, is what so many people have sought since the beginning of time. This light that is so pure and so powerful and will do no violence to anyone. And the meaning that shows us what we have always known and never had the strength to remember. Not only do we feel ourselves recreated by every experience of this light, but this, we say, is what we have always been looking for. This meaning, this reality, this bliss that we have misinterpreted and sought for in a thousand useless directions, this is what we desire. This which our everyday life now and then pretends to offer, but never properly gives. This union which we perceive really is a union. And it is the secret behind our odd, searching, incomplete lives. This light that suddenly shines in us Coming from where and going whence? How is this light obtained? Naturally, we ask. Hmm? How can we have a union with this new meaning? Through what does it shine? With what can I pry open away? We have to put into practice, and it is a constant practice, the process of using consciousness as a dissecting knife. To use consciousness for perception. Hmm? And this requires an effort that is not needed in ordinary life. And so we very easily forget it. And we fail to keep alive what we began. And we fall asleep again. So easily. 
maybe will come a day, though in our spurts, that we begin to realize that what we see with our senses, the world in which we live, hmm, is a world of effects, and that the causes are hidden. And yet it is those hidden causes that lead into the mysteries beyond the thinking solutions. And that in man himself, there are many unknown states. If a given one is sense-governed, he's standing the wrong way around. For to him, the senses come before the mind. What of this inner world, then? Hmm? He has inverted a natural order. Hmm. The sensory object, hmm, if taken as the ultimate or the highest reality, he forgets can be smashed, can be injured, can be blown up, can be blown away. And so it closes the mind. And as it does that, it closes the inner development of an evolution, an inner evolution. Things then are turned so long way around that we seriously explain a house by its bricks or the universe by its atoms. And we are then content with that explanation. There's a story about a man who was visiting in the Orient, and one day he came across uh, what the villagers had told him was a master who was sitting in front of his little temple, uh, just outside the village. Huh? And so uh, this visitor approached this master and asked him if he would read a few uh, sentences out of the Bible. And so the master said, okay, he would do that. And he read a little bit, and he says, oh, whoever wrote this is an enlightened one. And he started to give the book back, and, and uh, the visitor said, well, would you please read a little more? So the master did, and he said again, whoever wrote this is an enlightened one. And the visitor then took the book, and he went away, and he was so happy. He was so happy. Jesus had been recognized. And he said to his friends, Jesus really was an enlightened man. I went to this Buddhist and he told me so. You know? And this Buddhist is a master and he's a great man and he recognized what Jesus wrote. Now, if this visitor had been interested in the truth rather than just proving his point, 
he would have said to this master, who is this that is saying that Jesus was enlightened? Hmm? You know? Happily, he took his book and left. He was satisfied with a half-truth because he did not have presence of mind. <coughs> and now, may the peace and the power that passeth all understanding hold us and keep us in the love of the Christed consciousness while we are seemingly separate one from another. And I thank you very much. <laughs> If you find Lola's talks valuable, more will be posted in weeks to come.